Well, the first thing I would say is what you must not do. You will not receive power by being under the law. That was exactly the point that Paul is making in, in Galatians 3. These Christians had known this and they remembered this. It was an experience. And that's very important. This, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is an experience. It is something experiential. Now, this is a very it's a controversial point, and um, there are many Christians who don't really see this. I remember a, a conversation I had many years ago at Swanick, that, that same place where I will be next weekend that has just been mentioned. I was there many years ago at a different conference, and uh, I, was, I had the privilege of speaking to a very famous Theologian, I'm sure you would know his, many of you would know his name, Dr. J.I. Packer, James Packer. And uh, he was speaking there on the Holy Spirit. I was just a young student attending some conference. And I, I went to speak to him. And he was arguing that there's no such thing as this baptism is power. It's just for the first century. We don't know this these days. And um, we shouldn't be worrying about this kind of thing. And I went to see him and I said, well, well Dr. Becker, you're... I knew him vaguely because I'd studied under him under Bristol, so I knew him a little bit. I said, Doc, Dr. Jim, how, how, how comes... I think you, you said that the, uh, the, the baptism of the Spirit is an initial experience. We get it at conversion. It's an initial experience. He said to me, I didn't say that. I said, oh? I, I thought I heard you say the baptism of the Spirit is an initial experience. He said to me, I did not say it was an initial experience. I said it was an initial event. Now, can you follow that? I'll give you a doctor of theology if you can follow that. I didn't say it was an experience. I said it was an event. Do you follow that? It's something which which happens to you, but you don't know it. You don't feel it. It's just an event that takes place. It's there somewhere in, in the bottom of your soul, but it's not a thing that you experience. Or I like to put it like this. It's a bit, it's a bit like, it's a bit like uh, crossing the equator. Have you ever crossed the equator in in a plane? I have to tell you, when you cross the equator in a plane, you don't feel a thing. Now you sit, you sit in that plane. Be nice if you felt something. Be nice if you're sitting in that plane. And as you're there, it went And you say, you say, you say, well, what was that? And they say, oh, we just crossed the equator. It is totally non-experiential. You don't feel a thing. There are people who think that that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus and you've got the Spirit now. You don't feel a thing. It's like crossing the equator when you're asleep. But is that in the New Testament? Is that what, you, is that what happened upon the day of Pentecost? That they also took it by faith that somehow some event had taken place somewhere in the depths of their soul. And how could Paul say what he's saying in Galatians if the receiving of the Spirit was not an experience? Can't you see he's appealing to their memory? Don't you remember? Don't you remember that day when the Spirit was poured out upon you and you, you weren't listening to the law, you were just believing in Jesus? How can you remember something if it's not an experience? How can you look back on the great day when there was some mighty event and you came into blessing if it's buried in the depths of the soul and you don't feel a thing? Or, or do you remember what Paul said to the, the disciples in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19? He said to them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? 
You know that conversation with the, the disciples in Ephesus where Paul bumps into some disciples and there's something missing. They've not, they've not got power and liberty and freedom. And he's a bit sort of uh, perplexed about them. He says, well, now what's happened to you? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Now think about that question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Supposing I were say to, to, to say to you, did you go to Paris when you went to France? What would I mean? It would mean, I know you went to France, but I don't know whether you went to Paris. I would mean you can go to France without going to Paris. And I want to know, did you go to Paris when you went to France? Are you following me? So if I say, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? It means I know you've believed, but I don't know whether you've received the Spirit in this particular way. You can't even believe without something of the Spirit. But, but receiving the Spirit experientially, consciously. I, I, so I know you've believed, but I don't know whether you've re- received the Spirit. I mean that you can believe without knowing the Spirit in this way. Just as you can go to France without going to Paris. So I want to know, what's happened to you? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And this is something that you're meant to know. How, how can you answer that question if you don't even know when you receive the Spirit? How can you answer the question if, if it's all passive and buried in the depths of your soul? It's an event that you sort of take by faith has happened, but that's all it is. No, no. And, and this contradicts the history of the church. You see, the history of the church is full of these things that I've just uh, read to you, one of them on the 1st of January, 1739. But the history of the church is full of these things. I think of what happened in a, a place in Scotland called the Kirkershots on the 20th of January, 1630. There was a man there, his name was John Livingston, and they were having a communion service. They were Presbyterians, and these Presbyterians, they used to have communion about once every three months, and they make a big thing of it and stay there for a weekend. It'll be a communion season. And there was a communion season at Kirkershots in 1630, and they asked some guy called, called John Livingston to preach. He wasn't much of a preacher. He really wasn't a very good preacher, but it was just his turn among the ministers. And he was a bit shy, and uh, he wasn't quite sure whether he could preach. He wanted to, to sneak away and, and ask, get somebody else to preach. He was not quite sure whether he could cope with this great occasion. But he thought he'd better, uh, he'd better do his duty. And so he began preaching. In those days, he used to preach for a couple of hours. He would spend the first hour just uh, explaining the scripture. And then about halfway through his sermon, he began to, to press it upon them, the blessing of God, and urge them to respond. And as he was just pressing the message upon them, suddenly the Holy Spirit came down. And upon that one day, the 20th of June, 1613, in Kirk of Shots, in that one sermon, 500 people were saved. And I don't mean 500 people walked forward in a crusade. I mean that five years, 10 years, 15 years later, there were 500 people who attributed their conversion to that one sermon when God came down. These things happen all the time. I could tell you many, many stories. I remember an occasion when I was in Aiduchwa. I tell you this story because all you guys from South Africa will probably know Aiduchwa. You know Aiduchwa in Transkei? Maybe you don't know it. Some little, some little hamlet, little village in the middle of Transkei somewhere in, in one of the, uh, the homelands, as they used to call it back in the apartheid days. And I was in Aiduchwa, this little 
small town in the middle of Transkai, unimportant place, and uh, someone asked me, would I, would I preach, would I speak for a few minutes at a prayer meeting? And I said, yeah, all right. And I began to speak at a little prayer meeting. But as this little prayer meeting was going on, suddenly God came down. And I was only meant to be just speaking for a few minutes, but actually I spoke for an hour, and people were so moved, and we began to pray, and that prayer meeting went on and on and on. And at midnight we were still praying, God came down in little Idochwa. And these things often happen in little places. They don't happen in Westminster Abbey, not even Westminster Chapel, sorry about that, but that's uh, true. They don't happen in the big metropolises. They happen in some little hamlet. John the Baptist was preaching out in the wilderness somewhere, some little place that nobody's ever heard of. Suddenly God comes down. Well, and it happened in Galatia, of all places. Well, the question is, how does it happen? Well, it's not something that you can switch on. You can't do it by walking under the law. You can't manipulate it. It always comes as a surprise. On the day of Pentecost, it was a surprise. Nobody knew it was going to happen. In Idochwa, on the 31st, on the 1st of January, in Kirkashots, none of these people were ever expecting anything to happen. It comes as a surprise. There's an old song, an old hymn that says, who was it, William Cowper, his old song, Sometimes the light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. That's it. Sometimes the light surprises you just, just praying or reading your Bible or listening to a sermon. Sometimes the light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. He comes and he blesses you and he, he stirs you and he puts you on your feet and you know that you're a child of God. You know that he loves you. You know that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes God comes down and it gives you a baptism of power. You, you're immediately transformed. And these things happen to churches. Well, you can't organize them. You don't get to, them from, to the law. What was Paul doing? He's, he's reminding them of how it happened in their case. He says, well, how did you receive the Spirit? That, that great occasion at the beginning of your church life when, when God came down and the churches of Galatia sprung into being, empowered by God. How did it happen? Well, was it by the hearing of the law? No. Well, how was it then? It was by the hearing of faith. I was placarding Jesus to you. And don't you notice in these passages that I've read to you that in each case what's happening is someone somewhere is talking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, the one that you crucified. God has highly exalted him, and God has lifted him up and given him a name that's above every name. And he has poured out that which you now see and hear. He's talking about Jesus. And as he's talking about Jesus, they are pierced to the heart, and they cry out, what shall we do? It's the same thing in Acts 10. He's talking to these Gentiles. Well, you know, I'm sure God will accept you. He accepts everybody. But Israel was blessed. God, it began with John the Baptist, and God sent Jesus. And Jesus died upon a cross. He was raised from the dead. And as he's talking about Jesus, once again, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. It is always in connection with the preaching of the gospel. If you want to know anything about this, the first thing I would say to you, and I'm speaking to you as a church, the first thing I would say to you is, Focus upon the heart of the gospel. Keep your very heart and mind upon and preaching and everything in the life of the fellowship focused upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just about to break bread and have a little communion and breaking the bread as we call it. Why, why, why did Jesus ordain that? 
Why did Jesus, on that last day of his life, take bread and break it and say, this is my body, this stands for my body. When you eat it, it's believing I died for you in my body. And this, this wine, it stands for my blood. It's got the same color, it looks red like blood. It stands for blood being shed. It stands for my being slaughtered and shedding my blood upon the cross. Do this, do this in remembrance of me. Why did Jesus ordain that? Well, the answer is quite simple. To keep the cross central in the life of the church. Every time we meet, we come back to the cross. Every time, every time we, as often as you, as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, said Jesus. The, the Lord's Supper, its design is that we keep our focus upon the cross of Christ. And didn't you notice when I referred to Kirk shots just now, didn't you notice it was at a communion service? And very often these outpourings, these baptisms of the Spirit have come in communion services. Very often. Happened in Kirkushots. It's happened on many, many occasions. When people are looking at the cross, when they're, as it were, surveying. You remember how Isaac Isaac Watts put it? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. When when you're, as it were, gazing, surveying, looking at this cross of Jesus, seeing that he died for you, he bore your sins in his body, that's the gospel. And you want God to come down on blessing? He comes down upon that. He comes down upon the gospel. He comes down upon faith. This is why he can say to these these Galatians who are wandering away from the cross, they're wandering away from faith only in the cross as the way of standing before God. He can say, you foolish Galatians. Did you ever get the spirit like that? Did you ever get the spirit by wandering away from the cross and going to the law? Surely not. I was placarding Jesus before you. Remember that great song, when I survey the wondrous cross, see from his hands, see from his side, love and love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That, that's when God pours out his spirit. And haven't you noticed how often people are praying? On the day of Pentecost, they were praying. It happened to Jesus in the River Jordan when he was praying. He got baptized in the River Jordan, and the Bible tells us he was praying. And as he came up out of the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and came down upon him. And the the passage says, Luke chapter 4, the passage says, he went out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, he had the power of the Holy Spirit. He never preached a sermon before that time. The Son of God never dared preach a sermon until he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Son of God never began his ministry, never going around praying for people, preaching, healing. He never began until he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as he, as he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. To which I say, Jesus knew that already. Jesus already knew that he was the Son of God. He said when he was a 12-year-old boy, I must be about my father's business. He already knew he was the Son of God. Why did he need to be told again? 
Oh, well, I answer. With the baptism of the Spirit, your knowledge that God is your Father is intensified. You know. You have a spirit of adoption. You cry, Abba, Father. What you know already, you now know twice as much. What you already knew is sealed to you again. And you cry, Abba, Father. It is an intensification of your sonship. It is a doubling of your assurance that, that God is your Father. How do we know this outpouring of the Spirit? Well, I have no rules for you. I have no easy technique. I'm not, I'm not a believer in any kind of technique. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to lay hands upon you. People can do that. It's not, it's not sin, but, uh, but you don't receive the Spirit by technique. Sometimes you can, as it were, use some kind of technique to get, to get someone the gift of the Spirit but very often the people are no different, after, no different after the technique as they were before the technique. I was in a church in Cape Town six months or so ago and a, a preacher, sort of friend of mine, a guy I like, but uh, don't always like what he does, but uh, a guy I like was uh, praying for people. He called the congregation forward. He wanted to pray for every single one that they might know the blessing of God and the, the gift of the Spirit. There were a thousand people there, and he prayed for them in 30 minutes. And if you do some arithmetic, you will work out that that means that each one had 1.8 seconds to be prayed for. He went down the rows. Receive the Spirit, receive the Spirit, receive the Spirit, receive the Spirit, receive the Spirit. Down the road, laying hands, laying hands. He laid hands on a thousand people in 30 minutes. And he said, he said it comes through my hands. There's a kind of electrical covenant in my hands. And when I, when I lay hands on you, it's like a current. It sort of uh, empowers you. And the only thing that stops the electricity is if there's a, a resistance. As long as you don't resist, you'll get the power. My friends, that's all trickery and psychology. I'm not denying that he was the sincere man he was, but uh, I had an email the next day from an elder in a church. I really, I really wanted to receive the blessing from God, and uh, I didn't get anything. Was, was I, am I a resistance? Don't have an exaggerated doctrine of the laying on of hands as if it's some kind of magic. The laying on of hands is just prayer. The laying of hands is just saying, I am praying for you. And it's sort of specifying what you're praying for. You are praying. And uh, there's nothing wrong with laying on of hands, but uh, it's not a technique. It's not a trickery. It's not, it's not psychological. Don't try and get, don't try and people, get people to pray in tongues. Make, make, make your tongue hang loose. Say blah, 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 blah. You know, say something. Blah, 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 blah. You try to talk. My friends, you might get something, but it won't be the power of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't do that on the day of Pentecost. You think Peter did anything like that upon the day of Pentecost? Did did anybody do anything like that to Jesus on the day when he was baptized and received the power of the Spirit? Was it some kind of manipulative technique or trickery? No, no, no. Actually, since people have begun to do things like that, real revival has left our country. We haven't had a major revival in this country since people started doing things like that. If you want the real thing, stop playing tricks. If you want to do the real thing, let it come from God, not just from some clever guy who can produce phenomena. All sorts of people can produce phenomena. First thing we must do is leave aside any kind of trickery and stop, as it were, trying to be in control and bring Pentecost down by our singing or our getting people to clap their hands or rousing them to a frenzy. 
Now, now, if you want a real blessing from God, don't let there be any trickery. Let it come from God. Remember, I like the great story of Elijah. Remember when Elijah, in that contest with the prophets of Baal, he called fire from heaven. But did you ever notice that before he called fire from heaven, he got buckets of water and poured it over all of the sacrifice. He drowned the whole place with water. Why did he do that? So that people would know that when the fire burned the sacrifice, it wasn't coming from any trick. He actually made the whole thing soppingly wet before he called for the fire to fall. And often revival comes when you're almost giving up. On the day of Pentecost, they're hiding behind locked doors. They are afraid of the Jews. They're scared to even step outside lest they get arrested. In Kirkushots, John Livingston, that man, he thinks, well, I don't think I can preach. I better go home and let somebody else preach. Well, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll do my best. He's almost despairing of himself. Or they're hiding behind locked doors. They're about to close the church. They're almost giving up. And all they can do is pray. And as they're looking to God alone, suddenly God comes down. This is what we need in our country. Here we are. We're being invaded. In a few years, there'll be more Muslims in mosques than Christians in churches. Here we are. We're declining. It doesn't worry me. God has a habit of when things are at their lowest, saying, ah, now I'm going to move. When, thing, when we're almost giving up, when churches are closing their doors, when the Church of England is selling its buildings to become mosques, when things are at their worst, God is likely to move. First of all, you must put aside all trickery. And then you proclaim the gospel. You go back to this central message of the cross that Paul is preaching in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, says Galatians chapter 3, being made a curse from us for us. You start proclaiming this cross. You zero in upon the gospel and start preaching about the blood of Jesus. You preach the message we are reminded of in the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And you know that you're saved by faith only. Not faith plus how good you are. Not faith plus your morality. Not faith by your churchmanship or your, or, or your church membership or your being baptized. But Jesus plus nothing. Just the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you preach this gospel that salvation is by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you look to God to honour you. You look to God to bless you and pour out the Spirit. There is nothing you can do to, as it were, switch on the power. This has to come from God. But God has a habit of honouring us when we need him, when we're looking to him, when we're crying to him and him alone, when we're putting our faith in the blood of Jesus. This is why very shortly we'll have this Lord's Supper Together, we look at this bread and we see this is my body. Not, not that the bread is a body in some magical way, but it symbolizes that Jesus died in his body. How do you get saved? How do you become, how do you become a Christian? Well, it's nothing that you do. Not by how good you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. You're a very good person. That doesn't help God to save you. He doesn't need your help very wicked person that doesn't put God off how good you are doesn't help him how bad you are doesn't hinder him 
He does everything through Jesus. Jesus takes your sins and he dies for your sins in his body. That's that's why we we eat the bread. He he died for your sins in his body upon the tree, upon the cross, made out of a tree. He bears your sins and God punishes him instead of punishing you. God lets the, the, the anger of God against sin fall upon him that it might not fall upon you. And he sheds his blood, they crucify him. They stab his side and blood and serum comes out. He's not dying of old age or of malaria or or some illness. He's dying under the anger of God. He's being crucified as a sacrifice. It was the will of God to bruise him. God upon him, God has laid the iniquity of us all. That's this gospel message. We have to preach it week after week and Sunday after Sunday, morning, noon and night. This gospel message. Not that we always preach the same thing every time in detail but from this angle and this angle and this angle and this way and this way and this way always coming back to the cross back to this gospel and God will honour us it's the only thing that saves people people don't get saved by how religious they are by joining the church or promising to be, to be better they get saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and in no other way you want to be a Christian this morning, you're here this morning and you haven't a clue what's going on, you're, this, you're, not, you're not used to being in places like this, I don't, know, I don't know what's going on here, what sort of lunatics are these? All I can tell you, we're people who've been saved by putting faith in Jesus. We've trusted Jesus. And the very moment we trusted Jesus, it changed our life. It transformed our life. We became new people. Our sins were forgiven. We became the children of God. We were born again. Power came upon us. And maybe not long after that, we were seeking God. We were praying one day. And suddenly as we were praying, the power of God fell upon us. And we've become people of power. We're not the people we used to be. That's what the Christian gospel is all about. That's why we're here. Oh, my friends, I've got no easy answer. How do we receive the Spirit? Well, I've no easy answer except preach and proclaim and placard this gospel and be people of prayer and look to God to honour you and pour out his Spirit upon you. And who knows, you'll be here one Sunday and suddenly there'll be something, it'll be as if the very building is shaken and you won't want to stop the service, it'll go on all day. You'll forget about lunch, you'll forget about this, you won't want to go home. And there'll be such a power, such a presence of God and people, people all over the place will, will feel it. You get people walking down the road and they feel, yeah, what's going on? I, I feel like I want to go into that building. And, they, and they, what, they come, they don't even know why they're coming. God is, as it were, bringing a kind of magnet in which people are coming to this place where there's power. On the day of Pentecost, thousands came. Seconds after the day, they were baptised with the Spirit. This is the way God works. You want to about, know about local churches. We are not some sort of club. They're not some religious group that goes a bit weird on Sunday. No, no. Churches are ordained by God. We've got a message, we've got a saviour, and we've got a power. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we live the life in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop there. And very shortly we'll look at this amazing cross again in the bread and in the wine, where Jesus takes the bread and said, look, look at this, don't close your eyes, never close your eyes in the communion service. You're not meant to close your eyes, you're meant to open your eyes. Look, look at this, this is my body. Okay, keep your eyes open. Look at this wine, this is my blood, it stands for the blood. Eat, it means you're feeding upon the cross, you're feeding upon the fact that Jesus died for you. We're one body, we're all doing it, the whole people of God are all feeding upon this one loaf, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we all have in common. We have nothing else in common. 
and have accents in common, all you South Africans, with your accents, and me with my, me with my London English, Basma Stone with an Arabic twinge. We, we don't speak the same accents, we don't look the same. Some are ugly, some are beautiful, some are clever, some are not so clever, some are this tribe and that tribe, but we all have one saviour. We're one body, we're one body. This is what God blesses with his power. It's at that point that God pours down his spirit and his power. Praise God.